0: Hiya friends! I'm Megan, a true crime enthusiast who thought it would be a great idea to start a podcast. Join me and my rotating co-host as we explore true crime from coast to coast. The Earth is a place filled with magnificent wonders, but also great darkness. This darkness leads to the Kaleigo Effect. one of the most trusted people in your life? For most people, the answer would be their mother or significant other. Now, what if that person was the one to remove you from the world in the pursuit of power and wealth? Well, in the case of the serial killer Belle Guinness of Indiana, her thirst to excel her status upward was the only thing that mattered, and she would do anything to make her life as luxurious as she thought she deserved. Joining me for today's episode is my mother, Sue. Thanks for joining me today mom. It's nice to be here. Are you ready to learn about Belle Guinness, the Indiana ogress? I sure am. Hold on to your hats and let's get into it. (laughs) So we'll kind of do a little bit of background on Belle. So Belle Guinness was born as Brunhild Palsdaststrasse don't quote me on that I'm trying my best (laughs) she was born in Selbu Norway in November of 1859 so it's an older case Um, she was the daughter of a stonemason named Paul Peterson Storset and Brett Olsen daughter there's gonna be a test at the end so be be sure you're ready (laughs) not much is known about her early life but her family was extremely poor at an early age Brunhild was hired out to surrounding farmers to work as a cattle girl/ dairy maid. So interesting? Uh, yeah. One common but unverified story was that at the age of eighteen, she was pregnant out of wedlock, which is naughty, Ooh, naughty. Back and then. she went and attended a country dance. Well, at the country dance, she was attacked by a man, and he kicked her. So uh, she lost the baby. Oh, due to that. And the man was from a wealthy family, but he was never prosecuted by Norwegian authorities. Do we know why he kicked her? No. But they do say that her personality dramatically changed after that. I and think I that's just, just why. What? Like snapped. And then it's gonna kind of lead into some of the stuff she does later on in life. A short time later, the man who kicked her died from stomach cancer., hmm. At least that's the theory. Interesting. <laughs> After that, she went to work as a servant on a wealthy farm for several years. So she found other work besides being a dairymaid and all that. She ended up migrating to the United States in 1881, and she moved to Chicago, Illinois, in the search of wealth, and she ended up living with her sister, Nellie. Oh, at least she had some family. Yes. In Chicago, Belle ended up changing her name to Belle Guinness. So she was Brunhild, and she changed over to Belle Guinness to be more, more American. American. That makes sense. And then she was soon employed as a house servant. So she's finding some work. That's good. And the work was hard, and the hours were long. And she didn't have any of the common benefits of today, like vacation. So she's just working all the time. No breaks. Oh, can't imagine. Most immigrants worked hard and hoped for the best for their children. Not Belle. She saw the lifestyle of her employers, and she wanted that. Ooh. Her sister said later that Belle was crazy for money. It was her great weakness. This pursuit to wealth is what leads to our story today. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) So we'll get into her first marriage. So when she was in Chicago, she met her first husband, Mads Detlav Antoine Sorensen. Wow, that's a mouthful. Yes, I had to practice a couple times. He was a department store detective. What do you think a department store detective is? Like, what would it be equivalent to in modern day? Mall cop. Loss prevention. Loss prevention, yep. right. I thought that was interesting. I wasn't sure what that was. I had to look it up. <laughs> so they got married in 1884. Sorson later got a job in Chicago on the Chicago Northwestern Railroad and was paid 12 to $15 per week. Which is probably pretty good money back then, I would think. Nope. Hardly no. enough to keep up with the lifestyle that Belle wanted. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so probably good money for, like, a standard person, but not for her. Um, their life together seemed to be marked by tragedy. So uh, that's going to be a common theme. Her life is just tragedy after tragedy. Guinness and Stor- Sorensen ended up opening a candy shop in 1896. In downtown Chicago. But the business wasn't very successful, and it mysteriously burned down a year later. The theme. Yeah. Belle told insurance investigators that a kerosene lamp had exploded and set the fire. Despite the fact that there was no lamp found, she ended up getting the insurance money. Oh, wow. Thus kind of propelling her to do other frauds. It was probably this money that the Sorensons used to buy their first home in the suburbs where she wants to be. Uh, maybe. No. <laughs> you're going to you're going to learn a lot about her. So, this house was destroyed by a fire in 1898, and again they collected insurance money and purchased another home. Oh, now the theme comes. <laughs> she likes insurance fraud. Yeah, you think they figured it out? Yeah. So the couple had four children together, Carolyn, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. But two, Carolyn in 1896 and Axel in 1898, allegedly died of acute colitis, which has stomach problems. Yeah, mysteriously similar to styconine poisoning. I'm very bad at pronunciations, (laughs) but I try. The dusts were in the... Same years as the above mentioned fires. So the candy store burnt down, the kid passed away. The house burnt down, the kid passed away. The symptoms of acute colitis included nausea, fever, diarrhea, lower abdomen pain, and cramping. Dikinine is a highly toxic, colorless, bitter, crystalline alkaloid used as a pesticide particularly used to kill small vertebraries, such as birds and rodents. So, just a common... Belle ended up collecting the insurance money on the babies. How old were they when they died? I believe they were, like, just a couple months old. Yeah. That's harsh. That's... I know. She's got an issue. Well, a Obviously, lot of these people have I had issues. <laughs> I can't imagine being a mother. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. You can't imagine being a mother. <laughs> And in 1900, their home burned down again. But as was the case with the candy store, Guinness and Sorensen were able to pocket the insurance money. Obviously, they didn't have the... The, the backup, like, research on that right. back in the day. That's true, because they wouldn't have any way to... Unless it's... I wonder if it's different insurance companies. That's possible, like life insurance and, uh, like, house insurance and all that, so... They probably weren't all connected at one time. So, that's true. And then, in July of... July 30th of 1900, tragedy struck again. So many tragedies. Goodness. Her husband, Sorensen, died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. Strangely, that date represented the last day of Sorensen's life insurance policy, as well as the first day of his new policy. So, he had two overlapping policies on only one day. Oh, wow. His widow, Guinness, collected both policies, so it was $8,500, which in today's money would be $240,000. Wow. Which she could have only done on that specific day. She's pretty smart right now, anyway. Smart? Lucky? I yeah. don't know. But no one at the time chalked up anything but a tragic coincidence. No autopsy was deemed necessary since the Sorensen's family doctor had been treating him for an enlarged heart. Guinness claimed that Sorensen had come home with a headache and she had given him quinine. Quinine is an alkaloid derived from South American Chicoian trees, which also was well recognized by the middle of the 1800s as a drug of choice for treating malaria. Yep. Your grandfather had to take that when he was overseas. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that she gave him that for a headache, because when I was researching it, it said that it gives you a headache, but I don't know if that was known at the time. Right. Although her husband's family demanded an inquiry, no charges were filed. Yeah, so her husband died in mysterious circumstances to his death. So now she's going to move to Indiana, bringing us to our state. Oh, this is where she does a lot of bad stuff. Oh, like the other stuff wasn't bad enough. More <laughs> bad stuff. Belle Guinness left Chicago with her daughters Myrtle and Lacey, along with a foster daughter named Ginny Olson, who stayed with them until 1906. Belle was paid lots of money to watch Ginny and make sure she grew up okay. So, I'm just doing it for the money. She, she's going to live that lifestyle that she wanted no matter what. Sounds like she's getting there. With the $8,500 insurance money she received from her husband's death, she bought a 48-acre farm in Laporte, Indiana. There, she was set out to starting her new life. Neighbors described the 5-foot, 9-inch, 200-pound Guinness as a rugged woman, who was also incredibly strong. One man who helped her move in later claimed that he saw her lift a 300-pound piano all by herself. Ah! Wow. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I like music at the home, she said. <laughs> and that was her only explanation. Her LaPorte Farm had a colorful history all its own. It was built in 1846 by one of the original founders of LaPorte, Indiana, John Walker, for his daughter Harriet Holcomb. The Holcombs moved to New York in 1864 because LaPorte was a pro-Union town during the Civil War and they were southern sympathizers. Which I thought was pretty interesting to bring in that. Because you don't even think about this being part of that time frame, but it is. Right, yeah. Then 28 years later and six owners later, Maddie Eltic, a madam from Chicago, bought the property Property in 1892. She built a fancy carriage house and a boat pavilion. So wow. she, everybody's just into this. Most of her clientele was from Chicago. When Maddie died, the house went up for sale. Eight years later and four owners later. So this house has had a lot of owners. It became Belle's possession. Four owners in eight years. Yeah, and then there were six owners in 28 before that. Wow. So shortly after Belle bought the property, both the carriage house and the boat pavilion burned down mysteriously. (laughs) (laughs) She likes to set some fires. Yeah. Foreshadowing. So she gets married again to a gentleman named Peter Guinness. Huh! What a last name! And before long, the widowed Guinness was a widow no longer. In April, On April 1st, 1902, she married Peter Guinness, a butcher, butcher by trade. Strangely, tragedy seemed to return to Belle's doorstep yet again. Oh, no. One week after their marriage, Peter's infant daughter from a previous relationship Died well in the care of Belle. Wow. So she's watching this poor guy's kid that they just got married, and the baby ends up dying in her care. It's sad that they can't link all of these things back. No. Together. And she doesn't really get caught until too late, essentially, for everything. Then Peter died in 1902. So the same year they got married, same year his daughter died, he ends up dying. So all that, all three of those things happened the same year. Yes, Apparently, he had fallen victim to a sausage grinder that had fallen off a wobbly shelf. The coroner described the incident as a little queer, but believed that it was an accident. Guinness dried her tears by collecting the $3,000 or $81,000 today. So what did you fall on his head or something? Yes. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> the district coroner reviewed the case, unequivocally announced that he had been murdered, and convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. So they actually looking into this one. Let's see what they find. However, Guinness successfully convinced the investigators that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. Of course. At the time, Guinness did not mention that she was pregnant, despite the possibility that it might have inspired sympathy. And in May of 1903, Guinness gave birth to her son, Philip. First suspicion of her wrongdoings. Only one person seemed to be catching on to Guinness's habits. Her foster daughter, Jenny Olson. My mama killed my papa, Olson allegedly told her classmates. Oh. She hit him on the head with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul, though. (laughs) Soon afterward, Olson vanished. Oh, no. Belle initially claimed that she'd been sent to school at a Lutheran college in California. So... Yeah, she sent her off to call some place in California. So, after that happened, she needed some help around the farm. So, she uh, continued to run the farm and had a succession of hired farmhands. Ray Lamp- Lampier was hired to the position in 1906. However, word soon spread that her relationship with Lampier was more than strictly professional. When drinking, Lampier often boasted of sleeping with his employer which came as a surprise to those who only saw Belle as a burly woman who liked to dress in man's overalls and did her own hog butchering. But there was another side to the woman that Lampierre saw, and soon the local folks did as well. Lampierre would not be enough for Belle. Whoa. (laughs) She didn't think he was enough for her, so she started looking for suitors. Oh, wow. Okay. So after Peter's death, Belle began placing... Love-lorn ads in Scandinavian newspapers around the country looking for a new husband. Her ads would read something like this. Wanted. A woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in a first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as a partner in the same. Some little cash is required for which will be furnished first-class security. Or there was another one. Personal. Personal. Comely widow who owns a large farm is one of in one of the finest districts of Laporte County, Indiana. Desires to make an acquaintance with a gentleman equally well provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. So she's gonna get some guys to come in, check them out. Yeah, she's gonna get more money. That's what she's trying to do. It seems Belle had begun correspondence with men who answered her ad, and eventually pledging her undying love and begging them to sell all of their things and come and marry her. So they have more money. Mm-hmm. Several middle-aged men of means responded to Guinness's ads, and within no time Belle was often seen going with for carriage rides with strangers on Sunday afternoons. So she was doing the th- she was dating. Belle was wearing the finest clothes on those occasions, and her hair was adorned in the latest styles, so she was putting herself up into that lifestyle she wanted. Usually accompanied by a handsome man, she was unrecognizable from the rough farm woman the locals were used to. Putting on the show. Mm Mm-hmm. But the men who came to the farm did not have a life to enjoy for very long. They arrived with thousands of dollars and then disappeared. (laughs) bum 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 yeah right the suitor victims one of these men was john moe who arrived from elbow lake minnesota so they were coming from all around elbow lake yes what i mean i'm sure there's names of all different cities everywhere he had brought with him more than a thousand dollars to pay off her mortgage or so he told neighbors to whom guinness introduced him as her cousin he disappeared from her farm within a week of his arrival. Ooh. One lucky man named George Anderson survived the encounter. George Anderson was from Tarquio, Missouri, said he would pay the mortgage off if they decided to wed. Late that night while sleeping in the guest room, Anderson awoke, startled to see Bell standing over the top of him, Ooh. peering into his eyes and holding a candle in her hand. He later stated that the expression on her face was so sinister and murderous that he let out a yell, and she immediately ran from the room without uttering a word. He quickly jumped out of bed and threw on his clothes. Without saying goodbye, he fled the house and ran away. Smart guy. Getting on the first train headed to Missouri. He never returned for his belongings and never spoke to Guinness again. I don't blame him. No. Olby Budsburg, an elderly widower from... Iowa, Wisconsin appeared next. He was last seen at the LaPorte Savings Bank on April 6th of 1907 when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land there, signed over the deed, and obtained several thousands of dollars in cash. Budsburg's sons had no idea their father had gone off to visit Guinness. When they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she promptly responded saying that she had never seen their father. And she was probably at the bank with him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Meanwhile, neighbors noted that Guinness had begun to spend an unusual amount of time in the hog pen at, her, at night. She also seemed to be spending a lot of money on wooden trunks, which witnesses said she could lift like a box of marshmallows. She's just a burly woman. Wow. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to the Guinness farm throughout 1907. Miss Guinness received male visitors all the time. One of her farmhands later told the New York Tribune, a different man came nearly every week to stay at the house. She introduced them as cousins from Kansas, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and from Chicago. She was always careful to make the children stay away from her cousins. Then in December of 1907, Andrew Hilgelin, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to her and was warmly received. Andrew had had found her ad in a Indianapolis tydend, tydend, tydend a Norwegian newspaper Norwegian language newspaper. The pair exchanged many letters stating some of the below. We shall be so happy when you once get here, Guinness purred in one of her letters. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Please come prepared to stay forever. And how long did she talk to him before that? <laughs> She's pretty I quick. I can't imagine it was very long. She's pretty quick. One of her last letters to Andrew said this: "But my dear, do not say anything about coming here. Now sell all of all you can get cash for, and if you have much left, you can easily bring it with you, as we can soon sell it here and get a good price for everything. Leave neither money or stock up there, and make sure yourself practically free of Dakota." It's so suspicious. I don't know why I didn't, like, set off any red flags on these guys. Unless they were so lonely. I guess. Until a letter received... Arrived and overwhelmed Andrew, written in Guinness's careful handwriting, and dated January 13th of 1908. This letter was found later at the Hilligen Farm, where he used to live, up in South Dakota. To the dearest friend in the world no woman in the world is happier than i am i know that you are now to come to me and be my own i can tell from your letters that you are the man i want it does not take one long to tell when a, when to like a person and you i like better than anyone in the world i know think how we will enjoy each other's company you the sweetest man in the whole world you we will be all alone for with each other Can you conceive anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of my dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. As she has dollar signs in her eyes. Yes, exactly. In response to her letter, Andrew rushed to her side in January of 1908. He had come with a check for $2,900 his, of his savings, which he had drawn from his local bank. A few days after Andrew arrived, he and Guinness appeared at the S- ba- Savings Bank in Laporte and deposited the check. Then he disappeared. Neighbors recalled seeing several middle-aged men coming again and never leaving. when questioned. Well, replied that each man would leave unexpectedly in the middle of the night. So, she didn't know where single they went. Every one of them. Mm-hmm. Second person that's suspicious of her. Besides her neighbors who think she's a hussy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1908, just when Andrew's brother became suspicious of Guinness's luck seemed to be beginning to run out. It's about time. After Andrew stopped answering letters, his brother Axel got worried. And demanded answers. Guinness deflected. You wish to know where your brother keeps himself, Guinness wrote. Well, this is just what I would like to know. Almost seems impossible for me to give a definite definite answer. She suggested that maybe Andrew had gone to Chicago, or perhaps back to Norway. Bravely, Guinness responded that if he wanted to come and look for his brother, she would help him search. He would have to pay for her efforts. So she wants money all around. Yep. But his brother wasn't falling for it. So his brother just suspicious and is like, I don't know where my brother is, but you're being shady. Real shady. Guinness had begun to develop problems with her farm hand named Ray Lampier. At one time, they had had a relationship, as we had discussed, and he seemed to be madly in love with Belle, and probably jealous of all those male suitors that kept coming in. And he began making scenes in front of them. Belle fired Lampier in early 1908, Bell went to the courthouse and declared that Lampierre was not in his right mind and requested authorities to hold a sanity hearing. He was declared sane and sent on his way. He was arrested a few days later for trespassing on Guinness's property. Despite the arrest, Lampierre returned again and again to see her, and she drove him away. He confided in a neighboring farmer that, one occasion, Andrew didn't bother me no more. We fixed him up for good. Oh, that she said that? No. Oh, he Lampier said that. was saying that to a neighbor. Oh. Lampier began making thinly veiled threats and wouldn't leave Belle alone. Kind of getting what she deserves, I think. It appears to have gotten so bad that Belle told her lawyer the day before the f- there was a fire at her house that she was afraid of him. And Guinness also claimed that she needed to make a will because Lampier had apparently threatened her life. That man is out to get me, Guinness told her attorney. I fear one of these nights he will burn my house to the ground. So why didn't she just take care of him to begin with? She took care of all these other people. I can't answer that. I think she actually liked him. You think so? hmm Guinness left her attorney's office and then bought toys for her children and two gallons of kerosene. That night, someone set her farmhouse on fire. Back in those days, they kept track of what you buy at the store. That's not very bright. In February of 1908, Bell had hired a man named Joe Mixon to help her on her farm and to replace Lampier. A couple of months later, farm caught on fire. Mixon awoke in the early hours of April 28, 1908, smelling smoke in his room on the second floor of the Guinness house. He opened the hall door to a sheet of flames and screamed Guinness's name, and those of her children, but got no response. He slammed the door, and then in his underwear, leaped from the second-story window, barely surviving the fire that was closing in around him. So there was a survivor of the fire. It was this Joe Maxson. Now, she, did they survive? Did she survive? Oh, we'll get, we'll get okay. into it. Sorry, I'm asking all these questions. No, it's good to ask questions. So he raced into town to get help, because they didn't have telephones at the time. But when help arrived, the house was already in smoking ruins. In the smoldering ruins, workmen discovered four skeletons. Three were identified as her children. However, the fourth was believed to be Guinness, was inexplicably missing a skull. Authorities struggled to determine whether the headless corpse they had found in the burned house belonged to Guinness. Although the police found a set of teeth among the ruins, there was still some debate on whether or not they belonged to Belle Guinness. Curiously, the corpse itself seemed to have been too small to be hers, because she was a burly woman. Yes. Even DNA tests that were done decades later from envelopes of that she had licked to send letters um, were unable to definitively answer if she had died in the fire. On site was County Sheriff Albert Smutzer. It's Smutzer. She had, he, who had heard that about Lampier, Lampier's alleged threats. Taking in the grisly scene, he immediately concluded that the fire was no accident, and rather was arson and murder. He th- then sent two of his deputies digging into the debris, digging for the corpse's missing head, and sent two others to arrest Lampier. The former handyman was brought in. He denied having anything to do with the fire, claiming that he was not near the farm when the blaze occurred. However, a neighborhood boy said that he had seen Lampier running down the road from the Guinness House just before the structure erupted into flames. Lampier was arrested and charged with murder, but his cries of innocence were falling on deaf ears. So she paid somebody, probably. Guess we'll have to just wait and see. Meanwhile, Andrew, the guy from earlier's brother, heard about the fire in the newspaper. He showed up in hopes of finding his brother. For a while, he assisted police as they sorted through rubble. Although he had almost left, he began became convinced that he couldn't do so without taking an extra look for Andrew. I was not satisfied, he said. And I went back to the cellar and asked one of Guinness's farmhands whether he knew of any hole or dirt being dug up thereabout in the place in spring. In fact, Joe Maxim did. So that guy who jumped out the window... He knew of some, yeah. Bell Guinness had asked him to level dozens of soft impressions in the ground, which supposedly covered trash. Hoping to find a clue related to his brother's disappearance, the brother and the farmhand began to dig in a pile of soft dirt in the hog. Pen. To their horror, they ended up finding Andrew's head, hands, and feet stuffed in an oozy gunny bag. Uh. Further digging yielded more grisly discoveries. In the span of two days, investigators found a total of 11 burlap sacks which contained arms hacked at the shoulders down in masses of human bones wrapped in loose flesh. Authorities couldn't identify all of the bodies, but they could identify Jenny Olson's Guinness's foster daughter, who had left for California. And it soon became clear that Guinness was behind some horrific crimes. About time. Yeah. All told, the remains of over forty men and children were exhumed. Lampierre stated, "I know nothing about the house of, I know nothing about the house of crimes, as they call it." He said, when asked about Guinness, Guinness's murders. Sure, I worked for Miss Guinness for a time, but I didn't see her kill anybody. And I don't know she had... And I didn't know she had killed anybody. So he's denying that he knew anything, even though he already told the neighbor that they took somebody out. So, here's some information from American newspapers. News of the gruesome discovery spread throughout the nation. American newspapers labeled Belle Guinness, the Black Widow, Hell's Bell, Indiana (laughs) Ogress, and Mistress of the Death Castle. Sounds about right. Yeah. Reporters described her farm as a horror farm and a death garden. Curious onlookers flocked to La Porte as it became a local and national attraction to the point that vendors reportedly sold ice cream, popcorn, cake, and something called Guinness stew to visitors. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. Eventually, Lampier gave a deathbed confession before he passed away of tuberculosis in December, th- On December 30th of 1909, he admitted to a fellow inmate that Guinness had killed 42 men. When a v- victim arrived, she would make him comfortable, charming him, cooking him a large meal. Then she would drug his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. At other times, she would wait for the suitor to go to bed, and then enter the room by candlelight and chloroform the sleeping victim. So she had multiple methods to right. her madness. The powerful 48-year-old woman had would then carry the body to the basement where she most often dissected it and bundled the remains and then buried them in the hog pen. She dumped the corpses into the hog scalding vat at other times and then covered the remains with quicklime. Cuz quicklime makes it go away faster. Yep. And worse, according to Lampier, if she was overly tired, she would chop up the remains and feed them to the hogs. Then I did the planting. Meaning he buried Buried it. Lampere admitted to helping her dispose of the victims' bodies, but denied helping Belle extort and murder her victims. So he says he only put them in the hole. Gotcha. I mean, not. Why would you stay around for that? He must have loved her loved her or good money or or he was yeah. a little off too well based on how obsessed he was with her that would make sense that's true he insisted that bell was not dead that he had helped her escape by taking her to stillwell a small town east of laporte where she caught a train to chicago he then returned to the farm and set fire to the house to cover her escape According to Lampier, the headless body in the fire was a Chicago woman whom Bell had hired a few days earlier to be their housekeeper. He went on to claim that Bell had killed the housekeeper and children planting the bodies in the house to make the dust look accidental. Once the housekeeper was dead, she decapitated the body, tied weights to the head, and disposed of it in the swamp. She then dragged the corpse to the basement, dressed it in her own clothes, removed her false teeth, and placed them beside the headless corpse to ensure it was identified as her. She also chloroformed her children and then smothered them to death and carried them to the basement. She then torched. They, he then torched the small brick farmhouse and. Yeah, Lampier also claimed that there was at least one other accomplice, but offered no name. Despite all of the investigating and confessing, there was never been a conclusive answer for the house flyer and corpses just theories. The first theory, Belle and her children were murdered by Lampier in a jealous rage and placed in the basement by him prior to fi- the fire. The second, Belle murdered her three children and an unknown woman had set, Ray set the fire, as he had admitted. Or third, Belle may have had accomplices in Laporte other than La- Ray Lampier. These accomplices perhaps highly placed and had been helped Helping Belle to cover up any of her crimes. Conspirators had... Conspirators would explain why she was able to get away with her activities for so long. When inquiries about her victims became more persistent, Belle and the game may have decided to cut their losses and plan the fire to get Belle out of town. Instead of Belle escaping, her partners may have tried to kill Belle and ensure her silence about their part in their nefarious activities. That's an option. (laughs) or for her money or both yeah both i would say <laughs> so there were some sightings of her after the fire so there are many sightings about 20 odd years after the fire they actually started before people thought she might still be alive train workers claimed to have seen her board a train going to chicago in april 29th of 1908 On May 8th of 1908, a woman who fit Bell's description was pulled off a train and detained until her identity was proven. Most of these sightings were investigated and discounted except one. In 1931, in Los Angeles, a woman going by the name of Esther Carlson was arrested for the murder of a man she was caring for, August Lindstrom. He was for his $2,000 bank account. Miss Carlson died in prison before the trial and before her identity could be proven. Two former Leportians uh, viewed the body in the morgue and came away convinced that they had seen the body of Belle Guinness. Wow. Even had the photograph of kids who looked a lot like Belle Guinness. So her kids, they took a photo of them and compared it to her. It remains unconfirmed when and where Belle Guinness actually died. On November 5th of 2007, with the permission of descendants of Belle's sister, the headless body was exhumed from the grave by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students at the University of Indianapolis to learn her true identity. It was initially hoped that the sealed envelope flaps of the letter from found on the victim's farm would contain enough DNA to compare to the body. Unfortunately, there was not enough DNA, and the mystery still remains. Oh, wow. So, that is the story of Belle Guinness. She got away with it for so long. Yes, and she, and she probably kept getting away with it, and finally got caught when she killed that final man and died in prison. Wow, she was getting greedy. Mm-hmm. Well, she was greedy her whole life. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, but what? Well, I guess when she faked her own death, did she take any money with her? You know, probably went, not, because cutting don't her want losses. To, yeah. So then she needed to redo it again. <laughs> yeah, Build that bank account up. Now we're going to get into the names of her victims that are proven, some that are unproven, and some that don't have names. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Ol B. Budsberg, which we talked about him already. He vanished in May of 1908. Thomas Lindbow, who left Chicago and had gone to work as a hired man for Guinness. Henry Gerholtz of Scandinavia, Wisconsin had gone to wed her a year earlier, taking $1,500, and a watch corresponding to the one belonging to Gerhold, was found on a body. Olaf Svenhard was from Chicago. John Moe of Elbow Lake. His watch was also found, but it was in Ray Lampteer's possessions. Oh. Olaf Lindblom, age 35, from Wisconsin, Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois. He was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her that he was going to LaPorte to secure an investment with a wealthy widow. He had with him a $1,000 from an insurance company and had borrowed money from several investors. In June of 1908, his widow was able to identify his remains from LaPorte's pauper cemetery by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. Oh, wow. Can you imagine how hard it was back then to identify people like that? They're lucky that they were able to identify this many. So these are the unproven ones. Unproven that she did it. It could have been other people. Christy Halkvin of Dover, Wisconsin, sold his farm and came to La Porte in 1906. Charles Nieberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia, told a friend that he would visit Guinness... In June of 1906 and never came back. He had been working as a saloon keeper and took $500 with him. John H. McJunkin from Corapolis near Pittsburgh left his wife in December of 1906 after corresponding with a Laporte woman. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant from Carroll, Indiana, wrote his relatives in 1906 he would marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. So the ones that left their wives to go marry this girl? Mm-hmm. Even though they were already married? Uh-huh. Well, that's not good. No. <laughs> she was a swindler. That's she for sure. She must have been a real smooth talker. Smooth talker. Mm-hmm. Bert Chase of Mishawaka, Indiana, sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow and that he was going to look her up. His brother received a telegram supposedly from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck train wreck. His brother investigated and found the telegram was fake. Ooh, she's getting... Yeah. Really smart. Well, these are unproven. These aren't proven to be hers, but Laporte, widow... I mean, widow these people, yes. <laughs> There's not that many, I wouldn't think. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged for having gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children a widow and three children in October of 1907. T.J. Tifflin of Minneapolis is alleged to have gone to see Guinness in 1907. Frank Readinger, a farmer of Wickasha, Kansas, came to Indiana in 1907 to marry and never returned. Emile Tell, a Swede from Kansas City, Missouri, alleged to have gone in 1907 to LaPorte. Lots of unproven's. Lee Porter... Bartonville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother that he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. John E. Hunter left Dequison, Pennsylvania, on November twenty-fifth of nineteen o seven, after telling his daughter that he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Northern Indiana. Abraham Phillips, a railway man of Birmingham, West Virginia, left in the winter of nineteen o seven to go to a Northern Indiana to marry a wealthy widow. A railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Reported other unnamed victims. So these ones don't have names associated with them. A daughter of Miss H. Wetzler of Toledo, Ohio, who had attended Valsparino University near La Porte in 1902, an unknown man and woman who ...were alleged to have disappeared in September of 1906, the same night Jenny Olson went missing. Guinness claimed that they were Los Angeles professor and his wife who were taking Jenny to California. Oh, she knows all these people, huh? They're mm-hmm. all connected. A brother of Miss Jenny Graham of Wakasha, Wisconsin, who had left her to marry a rich widow in La Porte, but finished... A hired man from Ohio, age 50, name unknown, is alleged to have disappeared, and Guinness became the heir to his horse and buggy. Oh. An unnamed man from Montana, who people at a resort, t- he was going to sell his horse and buggy to Guinness, which were found to be part of the several horses and buggies that she had on the farm. How many did she need? All of them. I mean, she burned her carriage house down, so I don't know where she was putting them all. Probably in the barn with the pigs. (laughs) Most remains on the property remained unidentified, and it is estimated that there was a total of 40-plus victims overall for her. Wow. (laughs) And she probably never even looked back. Probably not. Thank you for joining me. I hope you found it interesting. It was very interesting, (laughs) especially since we do have some... We spend time in Indiana. Indiana. We have yeah. like, a little trailer on the lake that's very Right, cool. so if I ha- might have to go check that out, that area anyway. Yeah, I think it's about two hours from where we normally hang out. So I'm going to tease the next one. Okay, what do you got? So the next episode, here are your hints. This gentleman created a murder castle. He was thought to have been Jack the Ripper in England. He was born named Herman Midget. What a name. Yes. So tune in next time. What state? This is for Illinois. Illinois. So tune in next time and maybe you'll find out who we're talking about. I will do that. All right. Everybody have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on our journey to explore true crime from coast to coast. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a review and join us for our next episode where we will be traveling into the darkness of our next location until next time. Always remember to stay vigilant and safe.